Welcome to the Real Education Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Bowles, and on this show, I interview remarkable people who think way outside the box in education. To listen to more episodes, learn more about my guests, or become a patron of this ad and sponsor-free show, visit blakebowles.com slash podcast. You can also email me at yours truly at blakebowles.com. Now, on to the show. guest today is Patrick Ferenga, the president of Holt GWS, which stands for Growing Without Schooling, and the co-author of Teach Your Own, the John Holt book of homeschooling. Pat, welcome to the show. Thank you, Blake. Pleasure to be here. You worked with John Holt, the pioneer of the unschooling movement back in the 70s and 80s before he passed away in 1985. And so you've been at the center of this homeschooling and unschooling thing since the very beginning. Um, I'm curious at this point, what is your definition, your one-liner for homeschooling, for unschooling, and then for self-directed learning? Okay. Homeschooling is um, first and foremost the legal term for taking your children out of school and teaching them at home. Every state has a homeschooling law or some sort of regulation regarding homeschooling. So that word is enshrined in law. And then it has a secondary meaning of doing school in the home. Unschooling um, was John Holt's reaction to the word homeschooling because he'd actually written a book called Instead of Education, um, where he was trying to describe things that were like educational and, and valuable for society and for culture, but that didn't have to be compulsory schools. And um, so he defined unschooling as, as I do, which is Learning that doesn't have to take place at your in your home, nor does it have to look like school. And um, that's the one line for unschooling. And then self-directed learning. Now that's that to me has been um, something John Holt was always talking about self-directed learning, and a lot of the writers in the '60s and and '70s were too. Um, you know, the progressive uh, change the school writers of those times. But um, nowadays. You know, self-directed learning has very specialized meanings. If you look, if you do a Google search, um, I, I'm amazed at how many organizations there are and definitions are of self-directed learning. But for me, I, I, I'm going to keep it simple and, and just define self-directed learning is the natural inclination every human being has to learn. We would not be able to walk, talk, <laughs> or anything if we didn't have this drive for self-directed learning. So it's sort of natural learning. It's uh, You're saying that everyone has the capacity for self-directed learning. We do. I mean, it would be a cruel joke if, if, if we're not created with that. You know? Um, you know, John Holt used to say, birds fly, fish swim, humans learn. Uh, my friend P- Peter Gray points out that, well, animals learn too. But um, I don't think they learn my, in, in the same way that, that humans do and, and, and quite as extensively. So, um, but I think it is a natural thing. And that's one of the problems that, that we get into the minute we start defining learning. It, because all of a sudden now we're creating two classes of learning, you know, or, or three. Like, oh, you have self-directed learning, you have school learning, now you have unschooling learning. And for me, the big problem has always been to put all those genies back in the same bottle. Because they all they all originate with this drive to learn, you know. Um, 
and and we see it manifested in so many ways in the way the world is, is uh, of education is constructed now. Um, you know, where you know you can actually like play. They've eliminated play from school, so now they're talking about putting in gainful play or educationally appropriate play, as if play has no value <laughs> in and of itself. Simple self-directed learning, right? I mean, we all know this. If a child is born and they have proper stimuli around them and clean air, food, and shelter, they're going to grow and learn. They're going to learn the language of the people around them. It's inevitable unless there's some health issue. Um, but we doubt this. We, we I don't know why we doubt it since you know the modern world has only been, been around like 200 years tops with all the technology. We have the whole history of civilization before that. We actually have societies without schools, Periclean Greece, uh, colonial America, Elizabethan England. They didn't have schools anywhere like we did. At best, they had itinerant teachers who came around six weeks of the, of the year, you know, and, and that would be it. And that would only be for the families that could afford them. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's this crazy idea that, that we've developed that, oh, well, there's real learning, and that's a learning that takes place in school from instructors. And then there's self-directed learning, which is that silly thing that children do when they play with blocks. We'll beat out of them soon enough. That's right. And they certainly will. <laughs> so, Pat, can you be a homeschooler who is not self-directed? I would argue no, because your children are going to show you. And, and by the way, I, I would also argue you as a homeschooler being self-directed and learning how to do homeschooling the way you want to do it with your children. But I, would, I, I have actually met homeschoolers and teachers in schools and, you know, who say, no, we're not self, I, you know, I direct the children. You know, I'm, I am in control. You know, this is it. When they have choices, they're choices I give. So I think that people, like, create situations where, where they, they think that, like, like, they are the god of education and they're giving all the knowledge to their children and, and so on. And therefore, self-directed learning has, you know, if, if anything, it's a reward for the child, like sort of a break, uh, you know. But in reality, I think that's not how it works because, you know, how many kids have been, you know, taught, like, you know, to, to sit still and be obedient and study their math. And yet, what are they doing? They're drawing or, or reading a comic book hidden in the pages of the math book. You know, there's that drive for self-directed learning still still comes out. It's like I don't want to study what you're interested in. I want to do what I'm interested in, and that's the, and that's the problem with self-directed learning for a lot of educators. It's like they're not more interesting than an Xbox. Most schools are not. Are not <laughs> that, that's a good test, right there. Are you more interesting than an Xbox? Right. I, I heard Sugata Mitra say that at the Arrow conference a couple of weeks ago, when a teacher was complaining to him because uh, he said. Uh, if the kids needed a break from working on their computers, you, would, you put an Xbox in the classroom and they could use it freely. And the teachers objected and he said, are you telling me you can't be more interesting than an Xbox? <laughs> that's a tall order. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's a good standard to have for, for any educator. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, Pat, how did you uh, get into this? Uh, I know you've got a, a long history uh, working with John Holt and then continuing his works and his continuing his legacy. Uh, give us the nutshell version of how you got involved and how you personally, as a, as a father, uh, have made your educational decisions. Well, first of all, um, my background, I actually had two years of high school where I had an alternative school background. Um, I went to a 
school in the Bronx called Fordham Prep, and it was a classic Jesuit prep school that suddenly, fortunately for me, when I was a freshman, they decided to try something called the Fordham Prep Plan, where you got to choose your, your classes, and you had a mentor instead of a homeroom teacher, and the mentor sat down with you every day and ran through your plans for the day, and they, they, they were trying to prepare you for life in college. They thought, you know, this is, what, what are you going to do? And they even had X days, which were my favorite days, where once a month, everybody in the school, um, each department would put on some event, like uh, they would show movies. Um, like I remember the science department showed, a, uh, I forget the name of the movie, but it was a very horrifying movie about uh, anti-nuclear, about nuclear wars, an anti-nuke movie from the early 60s. And, um, you know, and, and they would do things like that. So I had that taste. But then, by the time I was a junior, they decided it was, you know, the, the conservative forces snuck in and, and said, oh, no, you know, they're, you know, these kids are using drugs. These kids are not going to be as smart as the, the classes before them, blah, blah, blah. And so they went back to a conventional prep school, and that's, and that's pretty much where I graduated from. But I always remember those two years vividly and how cool that was and how neat it was to actually have teachers who, like, talked with you instead of at you. And, you know, and that made a, a big difference to me. And then I went to college and graduate school and got that experience beat, beaten out of me. And I just said, okay, now what am I going to do? I'm going to be a teacher. And what did you study in college and graduate school? English, English literature. Got it. You know, and um, my specialty was Irish literature. I spent my junior year abroad at, um, in Dublin at Trinity College. But, um, you know, the, talk about a little niche. There are very few openings for professors of Irish literature now, especially back then. But also, um, you know, I, I, what else did I know? Like so many of us, we spent, I spent so much of my time in school. I did work at my father's funeral home for many years, um, and that made me decide not to become a funeral director. <laughs> but but um, I didn't know what else to do with my life, so I said, you know, I might as well be a teacher. So after I got my master's degree, I came back to Boston to be near my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And um, they weren't hiring teachers. They were firing teachers in 1981. They had a property tax rollback bill. People forget that education is a market, just like any other job market. And that was one of the low years. <laughs> you know, they weren't hiring. So I wound up working in a bookstore. And when I wanted to get out of the bookstore, I'll make this real brief. The, the cashier, one of the cashiers there, her, her husband was volunteering and Holt Associates, who's a big fan of John Holt. I knew nothing about the man, but he was a regular at the bookstore. He was a very avid reader, and uh, the cashier pointed him out to me. And so one time, um, John was actually on a three-month tour of Scandinavia doing speaking. And during that three months, I, I was volunteering in his office, and I learned word processing and um, how to you know, handle those machines and, and work with the mail-order business. And I was doing that in the evenings, and then John returned. And I was still looking for work. I was, you know, and so John asked me, you know, what I wanted to do. And I said, oh, I want to be a teacher. And he said, why? I said, I like working with children. And John looked me square in the eye and said, oh, Pat, you got it wrong. If you're going to be a teacher, you're not going to work with children. You're going to work on children. I love that story so much. I know. And it just kicked me back, you know, because, of course, I thought it was like this treasured profession. You know, you respect And I was like, what are you? How dare you say that about? And, and he was like, well, look. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to argue with you. You're not familiar with why I've come to this conclusion. So read one of my books, and then we'll talk about it. And I did. And um, and then through John, I wound up meeting people like George Dennison and James Herndon. I mean, really, the people as well as their books. And Ivan Illich. And um, and through that that exposure, I realized there's a 
heck of a lot more to learning and teaching and education than sitting in school and just taking tests. And I mean, did you then work full time for John Holt and for uh, Holt Publishing? Well, at the time, the company was growing. Uh, one of my first tasks was to, uh, to unbox the hardcover edition of Teach Your Own, which had, had just arrived, and you know that the week I started there. So um, I, 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 I sort of had a, a, a feel that this place was was vibrant, and then. And, and it really was very exciting. And I got started there in 1981. And um, there really, John estimated there may have been 20,000 children total being taught in America at that time. But you would think that you know, half of them you know, came through the Holt office and the phones were ringing off the hooks. Were all, you know, the subscriptions were growing to the point that John asked me, because um, I was going to leave you know, looking for work. He knew that. But then he said if, if um, I would become their advertising manager. Growing without schooling, so I started work there. You know, trying to solicit ads and bring ads into GWS, and um, then his managing editor left, and I filled in for her, and so I was able to take a full time job. And I was just just very lucky that you know I got there when they went pretty much from about a thousand subscribers to three thousand subscribers in a two year period, and the and Teacher Own just took off. I mean, it was very controversial. John wound up going back on the. Um, Donahue show, uh, and I put that online. You could actually see the, uh, you know, the the audience how hostile they are to the idea of homeschooling. How, yeah, those and, those are wonderful videos. Definitely Google John Holt Donahue show on YouTube, and yeah, th- those are very worth watching. Yeah, I mean, some people say John comes across as cranky, but I have to point out that was his second appearance on the Donahue show, and that audience was very hostile. So I I, I think that he had every right to be cranky. <laughs> But he, I still think he, he, he got off some amazing, you know, ones, he was a master of the epigraph, one sentence stuff that just sticks in your head. So this became your career uh, helping publish Growing Without Schooling magazine. And for those re- uh, listeners who don't uh, know about that, there was this really uh, wonderful uh, kind of resource-packed and story-packed magazine that uh, ceased publishing, was it in the late 90s, Pat? 2001. 2001. Mm-hmm. And it's the, really nothing like it has come to fill its shoes. I know that it played a big part in Grace Llewellyn's research uh, for the Teenage Liberation Handbook, which has affected many people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened after growing without schooling uh, ceased publication? And what is your role now? Well, you know, the independent publishing business, because we published uh, 10 books and um, we had a bunch of pamphlets and, uh, and back issues and stuff. And um, once Amazon and the Internet started to gobble up the independent bookstore business and then uh, the magazine business started to go south because of the Internet, too, as we all know, um, you know we decided that, that we had to pull the plug before we didn't have any money to pay anybody anymore. So we got out while we, while we could. And then um, I, I took control of um, the intellectual property of Holt Associates um, with the understanding from the board that I would continue to promote you know, Holt's work and stay true to the vision of um, you know, trying, trying to give people a life worth living and work worth doing, not a better education. <laughs> and, um, and so I've been doing that primarily by... Um, doing stuff on the internet. I still do speaking, but live speaking engagements are 
very much a thing of the past, or very rare, um, especially paid speaking engagements. You know, everything's on is, is done on online these days, and so I've been trying to adapt more and more uh, towards that format. Um, coming out with more digital publications, uh, we're talking about one uh, I want to come out with in a couple of weeks called um, "How to Report Unschooling to School Officials." Um, but I'm also working more with um, in, in, in other areas too. Like I, I, I'm definitely interested in trying to expand the whole notion of self-directed learning because. It gets lost in homeschooling and unschooling, and and it, it gets corrupted in school. And um, you know, I've been trying to reach out and you know with uh, Peter, Dr. Peter Gray, and uh, the people affiliated with Alternatives to School. Um, we the, the website that. alternatives to school dot uh, dot org. I, yeah, I think it's dot org. I'm, I well, forget. We, we'll find it easily. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, and. Um, you know, because as Peter noticed, you know, noticed the same thing. Is it's like a lot of people talk about homeschooling. A lot of people talk about self-directed learning, but who does it? <laughs> you know, who's really letting the kids do it? And Peter comes from the Sudbury Valley School uh, point. I come from unschooling, and, and we both say, "Yeah, I can see how that uh, you know self-directed learning is happening there." How do we let people know that this is a good thing? Um, and and it. And it's difficult. I mean, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk in more depth about this um, because, you know, one of the things is people really doubt self-directed learning, even their own, um, you know, and, and they all feel that they need that, that certificate of approval from the state, you know, which oddly enough, you know, history has shown has gotten less and less valuable. No one considers a high school diploma valuable anymore. And how many more years before the college, four-year college degrees can say, oh, no, you need, you need a postgraduate degree before you can work here? <laughs> yeah, let's dive into that. Uh, you and I both share an interest in the question of how does self-directed learning relate to the changing nature of work, the, the types of jobs that are available, and what, uh, in, what sort of personal traits are increasingly being asked of, uh, of both employees and self-employed people um, today, as opposed to... 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago when uh, a lot of, you know, parents uh, right now went through the, the school system and they sort of, they, they received, you know, the, the hidden messages about what kind of learning is important and valuable and, and what kind is not. Um, and so do you have a, a thesis about, uh, about this, about how self-directed learning is more relevant today than it was before because of the world of work? I, I do. Um, and, you know, but, but it, it's unfortunately you know, tinged with this, you know, w with this worry that, you know, that as I, even as I talk about it, it's being colonized and, and commodified for sale, you know, by educationists, you know, um, which is which is strange because one of the things that that really leaps out at me, you know, is technology. I mean, everyone is is all a buzz, and you know, we're all you know people like Bill Gates who recently said, "Don't be like me." By the way, the New York Times had a whole article that don't don't you know go to college, don't be like Bill Gates. But you know, everyone is saying like, "Oh well, you know, Bill Gates and um, Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg, the guy who started Facebook, you know, they didn't they didn't graduate, and you know, yet yet they had it." And then all of a sudden, you know, people were talking about, "Well, you don't need college for computers." That makes sense, but we still need college. And you know the irony is, if you look up hacker schools, um, there is a, there are many places where you can learn computing skills, 
And I'll bet you that a lot of these computer places would prefer that you, you had that you know, current skill rather than learning you know, uh, the four-year process in, in college. Unless, of course, it's in some specialty. I, you know, but I, I, I suspect that a lot of people right now you know, who are self-directed learners are finding that you know, technology is probably the easiest spot because if you can write a program that works, that fits the, the needs or matches the needs of an employer, I don't think they're going to give a hoot whether or not you have a two-year, a four-year, or no degree because the proof is in the pudding. And that's what we've always said. I mean, back in 1981, when I got when I started at, at Holton, I was like, "Well, what about going to college?" And John John was adamant then. First of all, you don't need college, but if you do, homeschoolers can get in. And if you don't, you know, they can prove it by you know by having recommendations, by having uh, of previous people that they've worked with and successes that they've had, talking, you know, scrapbooks, resumes. Um, and basically, Essays. references. Yeah. I mean, all the stuff that now uh, it's called an electronic portfolio. Back then, we didn't have it, you know, but it was there. And, and we still have to have that because ultimately, I mean, what are we doing? I mean, we're saying that the school is, is somehow now providing this. And we know what an imperfect, absolutely imperfect evaluation any school evaluation is of a person. Because, first of all, what school is it? Is it Newton, Massachusetts, or is it in Dorchester, Massachusetts? Right there, the inequalities of the school are going to leap out at you and the students. So, you know, the strange idea that somehow school makes everything equal is wrong. And self-directed learning, of all things, is going to be unique to each person. I mean, by its very definition, it is. So how, how come, or you know, yeah, we want everyone to be able to correctly add a tip at the end of a bill, uh, calculate their taxes and pay them, understand the speed limit signs and so on. Surely we, we can we we write a sentence that other people can understand and understand <laughs> exactly. a sentence that other people write. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But do we need, you know, do we, I mean, really, do we really need 12 years of school to make all that happen? You know, sure. We need well, places. Go ahead. I'm gonna. Yeah, let, let's circle back to the the, the changing nature of, of work arguing because I think you'll yeah. have a lot of people agreeing with you that for tech specifically, because the field changes and evolves so rapidly, that the case with tech has always been that anything that you're going to learn in school or in college through a class or a curriculum is probably already outdated, and mm-hmm. that the type of classes um, that are going to provide the really cutting edge education. Um, just don't exist. And so mm-hmm. by sort of de facto, you have to be a self-directed learner if you're going to succeed in such a rapidly moving and shaking um, industry. But I bet you'd have a lot of people say, well, well, Pat, what about all the, the fields that are not evolving so rapidly? What if my son or daughter wants mm-hmm. to uh, you know, become a nurse? What right. if my son or daughter um, is going to go into the service industry? Uh, mm-hmm. These are fields that are not being constantly um, you know, uh, overthrown each year like technology does. If you want to become a, a research physicist, there is a whole canon of knowledge um, that's out there that, mm-hmm. um, you know, for better or worse, it, it kind of the place you go to to learn, for example, research science is in a university setting surrounded by research scientists. And mm-hmm. so um, do you think that self-directed learning is more applicable or more important to people who feel drawn towards uh, rapidly evolving uh, types of, of employment uh, 
and and less applicable to people who are more in the the the, the old school or like the the licensed profession uh, domain. Um, no, I, I don't, Blake. I, I really think that that you know it's it's a matter of cultural perception. You know, right now because you know our culture respects money, as the Supreme Court made made quite clear, and money money talks more more than anything. And so the fact that all these people without college degrees are in technology making money um, seems to give them legitimacy and gives their self-directed learning legitimacy. But I'm aware of many people, um, you know, and you've probably met them, people, teenagers that you've worked with who are now young adults, who, who found work, you know, in the service industry or even in the university by taking non-traditional paths into those credentialing requirements, or who um, came up through the ranks. You know, um, in in those in those licensed professions, um, you know, for instance, nursing. Um, what you know, a personal story on that. My middle daughter Allison wanted to be a nurse, and um, she hated she hated school. She, uh, of my three daughters, she we always gave them the choice of going. We said there's a swinging door between our home and the school, and so we always gave them the choice every year, and sometimes <laughs> during the year, and. Um, all, all three daughters took advantage of this at one point or another in their, their careers. And all but Allison came home. In seventh grade, Allison said she wanted to go to school, and she never, never turned back. But um, when she was done with high school, she was done with school. She hated school. And so when she wanted to be a nurse, I was leaning her to be an LPN, which doesn't require college. It's a licensed uh, practitioner. And you, you actually study, there's a hospital right in our neighborhood that has an LPN program. And so she could have done that. But then one of our relatives, who is a nurse, said, oh, but everyone eventually becomes an RN. And you can only be an RN if you have a college degree. And it's so hard to get a college degree when you're you know, in your late 20s and 30s. <laughs> so I really, and so all the pressure was on Allison to go to a four-year college before she became a nurse. Well, poor Allison, you know, she, freshman year was a bust. She dropped out of school. That was it. You know, make a long story short, she's now wor working as a waitress and still trying to find her way. Um, she actually earned a two-year degree in medical administration from a community college, but she couldn't find, and she made more money waiting tables than she would working in there. <laughs> that was really a, a wake-up call. But, you know, I, I really think, like, this idea that, you know, I mean, again, John often said this about work. He's like, don't worry about college and credentials. Go directly to the place you want to work and find out what they need and how you can pitch in and, where, and, and what you can do. And then, if you need degrees, bring them in later. You know, um, I, I really wish that, that we'd follow that advice with Allison. But, you know, I was the lone voice supporting her in there because everyone was like, oh, yeah. You can get those college loans now, and you know, and you're, you're 18. You'll be there with other 18-year-olds. It's so easy. Well, you know, that's not true. It really wasn't true for Allison. And I think everyone should think twice before they start to, you know, to say, "Oh, you need to go to college first before you do a real job." I think actually the whole world is switching around anyway with college getting so expensive that it's going to be ridiculous. People can't afford to go to college unless they've had a career first at this point. <laughs> Yeah, and what most people do is they take on the the student loans required to jump over this hurdle, and then they are required to go into the field of work for which they studied, even if they discover that's not, uh, if or maybe they discover it's really not the right choice for them. And that's yeah. a tough situation to be in. I'm I'm glad that I didn't have to 
uh, yep. deal with that. And um, so it sounds like you're arguing that self-directed learning is important for everyone because um, not just because your your job or the the employment landscape might change underneath your feet, although it probably will. Yeah. Um, it's important to make uh, to be able to make the right decision to have enough self knowledge to f- choose your direction in the first place. And without enough time and experience mm-hmm. being a self directed learner, then y- you might just end up jumping through all these these hoops that other people have put in front of you, and uh, and end up someplace that's just not related to who you are. Is, it, is that accurate? That is accurate. I think you've described like you know many. Certainly, that was my experience when I when I left college as an undergraduate, I was like, wow, now what do I do? I better go back to school. That's the only reason I went to graduate school. I didn't know what else to do. (laughs) But if you have... Do you regret going to graduate school? No, no. uh, But again, it didn't help me professionally. It didn't make any money for me. I, but I went there because I, I, I really loved English literature and I learned and, and I made some great friends there who were still friends of mine. So it was not not a waste, but it, it was a waste in terms of me going there for a career because I never wound up teaching, <laughs> you know, in, in it, um, which is honestly where I thought I would wind up, you know. The thing about self-directed learning is that it makes you make choices and then you have to live with those choices and then make more choices to fix it if it's wrong or make it better if you want. And we don't get too many of those opportunities in, in modern society. We have all these rent seekers, I call them. Like, you know, you know the minute you're born, you got people who like, start taking your time. You have to see them for medical appointments or whatnot. But then it, it just gets to the point where we're like, in school, like, you know, your, your whole day is practically planned out for you. You know, and, and like, you know, when they talk about self-directed learning in school, it's often, oh, would you like to do art now or would you like to do gym? <laughs> you know, I mean, there's these crazy choices, you know, um, and, and the choices never know, which is a real choice that, you know, we, we all have. Um, you know, we, we can all say no. We need a break. No, I, I want to rest now. What if a kid or as, as John Taylor Gatto likes to say uh, the phrase, I would prefer not to yes. like as a response, as a response to, uh, do you want to take the standardized test? I would prefer not to. That's what he wants everyone to say. Right. Right. And it's brilliant. You know, uh, the Bartleby strategy, you know, in fact, here, here was an interesting uh, thought that uh, Mitro threw out uh, that I thought was wonderful too. He said that, you know, Everyone is using computers. It's, it's, it's the, the, the Chinese call the, the young children the heads-down generation because they're always looking at their cell phones. And he said, but this is wh- where it's at. This is what, you know, what, what we do. He says, if you look at work, like he showed a, fo- a photo, like, and you probably see this on like, all of the Microsoft uh, software you get, you get clip art, whenever they show business people. So it's like two or three people sitting around a laptop pointing at charts or something. You know, but then when you see, and, and so he showed like, you know, that's a computer and, and, and but here it is in school and in school, everyone's in a row, everyone's sitting at their own computer and a teacher's walking up and down you know, monitoring, you know, it's like, you know, so his idea was every test, every standardized test should, should be open laptop, you know, cause you're going to oh, use yeah. it anyway. You know, <laughs> we, we had, we had Will Richardson on this show and he argues for, yeah, he says open cell phone. Like you get to have your, your smartphone in during a test and you can Google anything you want. And I, yeah, that, it's genius. Yeah. That's, that's how tests should be because that's how 
actual real life, whether you're working for yourself or working for someone else, or we're not even talking about work and you just want to figure something out. Like right. that's, that's the situation. And it would really help cut through all the BS that the, that, you know, the, the education establishment has thrown at us about the value of these tests. Cause you know, it, you know, all it, they really are about creating a certain number of failures. So you have a certain number of winners to, to promote, you know, um, it's not about helping people learn this would help people learn <laughs> as if they got the wrong answer and they had and they were using their cell phone at least they could retrace their steps i don't know anyone who took the wrong answers from any standardized test unless they had to take retake the test and looked at what they got wrong and why <laughs> you know it's like i'm just so glad that test is over i never want to see it again you know <laughs> yeah it's it's weird how dominating those have become um pat earlier you mentioned that you felt concerned about you said the educationists uh, yes. efforts to to codify and evaluate self-directed learning and to, um, you told me earlier, to turn it into another scarce commodity doled out by the education establishment. Explain what you mean by this. Yeah, um, that's a, a very Illichian phrase. Um, Ivan Illich, you know, often talked about, you know, how learning is natural. I mean, he, he talks about the peasants in Mexico and in Puerto Rico in the 40s and 50s when he was a uh, head of uh, university there. And, um, you know, he's saying that, you know, and John Gatto, you know, genius is everywhere, John, John, John insists. And, and it's I, as common it, as dirt. It's as common as dirt. You know, and, 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 and Yvonne says, you know, the wisdom of, of these peasants and what Paulo Freire has done with, with people in, in South America, you know, illiterate peasants. said, so, you know, this is crazy. This idea that that, that we have to, uh, you know, say that you cannot learn certain things unless you're a certain age, taught by a certain person in a particular location. I mean, Ivan saw like people learning, you know, how to administer medicine in the field in in Venezuela and stuff, and 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 these experiences, you know, never left him. And John Holt had similar stuff, you know, uh, as someone who fought in World War II and um, traveled around Europe in the fifties on bike and stuff. And just sawing, seeing, like you know, how children were 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 not like these treasured commodities, like like bonsai plants, but just treated as as individuals and 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 asked to pitch in and to help and be part of the of society. And so and that's something so, that that I think John Taylor Gatto promotes also, which is the, yes. the idea of of children as little adults, which is actually, a, as far as I can tell, a, a pretty abhorred idea. In, in a lot of modern education circles, and right. you know, and and there is a lot of uh, you know developmental stage theory, uh, which I know John Gatto is also a little skeptical of. But it, is is that what you're saying that the common thread between these um, all these advocates was that uh, kids are much more capable of learning stuff on their own and taking responsibilities and working in groups than we commonly give them credit for? Absolutely, and then the scarcity piece of it. Is that um, you know? Illich notes that you know the way things get value in a capitalist society is to make them scarce. Um, <laughs> we're seeing this happening with water now, but that's a resource that that was once plentiful throughout the world and that everyone had access to. You know, and who knows? It may be true of air at some point. You know, I hope not, but the way we're going, um, and then. This idea of learning. I mean, you know, this idea that, you know, children will only learn if they're taught and they will learn better if they're taught by specialists. You know, that's what I mean by the scarce commodity. Like, 
because self-directed learning, it's so obvious, uh, you know, uh, just speaking with you, you, you know that, you know, I, I feel I've learned a couple of things already. I've made a, a couple of notes, you know. I mean, it's an ongoing thing. It never ends. But, you know, you can't build an – well, I, I argue that you can build institutions, and we need new places for children and adults to be. We, we need new experiences. We need new as, – as John Gatto terms it, a different kind of teacher, you know. We need to, to get out of the mold. But what happens is the mold is so strong, it just, it just, it just absorbs these things. And self-directed learning, we're, one of the things that came up at our last um, Alternatives to School meeting was we're, try, we're, we're really thinking that, you know, um, particularly with all these children who are just like 150 feet away from their home and they get reported to the social services for child neglect. You know, the parents. Because they're walking home from school alone? Home from school, right. 150 feet. Or they're playing in a park and their mother is working in a McDonald's not far from there, like within eyesight. I remember there was another story. And, and that child got, you know. So we're like, you know, can't children, like, I mean, we're all of an age. I don't know about you, but, you know, in the alternative to school group, most of us are, are in our late 50s and 60s. And we remember Riding bikes freely, and our parents like calling us in for dinner. Like they had no idea where we were. <laughs> dinner, you know, <laughs> throughout the neighborhood. Nowadays, it's just like parents like like they, they they feel like you know if they don't know what their children are doing every single minute that they're somehow going to get reported to the social services. So we were talking about creating a national association for self-directed learning that would protect people's legally protect the ability to learn on your own and to learn freely. And then the big, <laughs> Peter Graham was the first one to point this out. He says, how do you define self-directed learning the way we do? And then when we did the Google search, like I said, it's like 1.2 million hits on self-directed learning. And it's amazing. Like, you know, one, one organization has the 15 aspects of, of this. Another one is all about certifying. And this is, I mean, I'm not making this up. You know, it's certifying self-directed learning. Legitimate self-directed learning, and that's when we started laughing because we're, we're doing one of these um, group uh, online meetings. We're like, really? Are, are they going to say that a child learning to talk on their own is is not self-directed learning because they didn't certify it? You know, but they are. That's where we're going. And I, I can imagine an app for that. You know, oh, we could we could I, gamify <laughs> learning to speak and and get a reward. You know, this is actually a good transition into the the next topic. I, I want to make sure we've got some time for this, Pat. Um, so if you're a self-directed learner and you want to migrate into uh, – maybe you are a self-directed learner in a traditional institution. But l- let's talk about the case of um, someone who's like a homeschooler and wants to get into college or wants to get uh, the first uh, job. Uh, they need to translate what they've done um, into language that uh, people who you know, who don't understand necessarily the whole like unschooling approach can understand. And so you know, in economics, we call it the signaling challenge and that's what a college degree is that's what a high school diploma is it's a signal that we supposedly did this bundle of things and we represent this bundle of um, of personality traits and work ethic and etc and so you know it it is important and it it is a challenge that a lot of self-directed learners have to face um, to to codify their learning and to um, and to evaluate it in a way that you know, the natural learning perspective, you know, doesn't naturally flow from. So 
we've talked about online portfolios already, and I'm a big fan of those for teens who are trying to get into college. Absolutely. But an online portfolio has drawbacks also. If you're trying to go get a job with that, you know, an employer is going to say, oh, you want me to read through your 10-page website um, when instead I could just hire this person with a college degree? You know, that that's a drawback. And so uh, what's your take on, on this situation, um, my, trying to translate what you do for tra- uh, traditional institutions or job opportunities? Right. Making those correlations is important, and um, the more you can do that, the easier it will be to convince an employer that that you're capable of doing the work that they want. But I, I've been doing you know my own little research on this issue for about maybe two years now. You know, collecting articles and writing some thoughts down. And and one thing I keep seeing, and, and Paul Krugman in the New York Times has written very forcefully about this in recent months, and I'm very pleased. You know, this idea that we don't have the skills that employers want is is a just a bunch of BS. You know, um, if that were true, the the jobs with those skills would be paying super high wages right now because they're trying to attract people. They're just trying to get low wage employees who have those skills from foreign countries to work for them, not pay Americans you know what what they're what they're they should be paid. So I think that that there really is this, this whole issue of what is a fair and just society and um, education is used as a way as a smokescreen to protect against that because the other thing that I've seen is and I I'm not sure Krugman is, is written about this but I you know I, I I've read this in uh, the, a couple of Drucker reports Peter Drucker Institute and that is that employees increasingly want people who are self-motivated people who are team workers, and people who know how to communicate well. You know, we're not saying that they must know C++ and Java. You know, that, that's going to be true in certain, but in general, like in, in what we were talking about earlier, the, the licensed professions, the service professions, that seems to be the general theme. And yet our schools are not providing that clearly because, right, they're not getting hired either. Um, and this is one of the things that, 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 I think is really important about self-directed learning is when you pull ahead of school, what's left? It's you, your family, your local resources, your local community. You have to leverage that. You have to use that. And watching your parents or having your parents encourage you to do that and use that to make those choices, to make those calls, to, to follow up and say, hey, can I volunteer? Can I help you do this? Can I shadow you? Can I, you know, anything that, that will involve you um, taking action in school, they call it giving children agency. And again, to me, that's so sad because you know it, it's such a little bit of the amount of time that they spend in school, and and, and somewhere in some report card, yes, they displayed some agency. I mean, it's so sad when when self-directed learners, by their nature, you have to to, to be you know, have agency and then act on it. So I think being able to prove that to employers is important. But I also think those two other pieces. Being properly paid and 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 really meaning what you say as an employer. I want someone who's self motivated. Well, uh, you you could probably take someone who's worked at the not back to school camp and then parlay that experience into to, I don't know tutoring some some kids or, or whatnot. And now they want to work at, you know in a school. Well, the school's a bad example because they're going to be so. <laughs> yeah, maybe choose a different example. Yeah, they're going to be so hung up on licensure, but you know. You can find like a, a job where where the experience would play. I think that often the signal that a college degree sends is I'm white and affluent. 
that's the main signal that 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 we're getting, and it's and it's ridiculous because the only difference between and we were look, this is what bothers me about this discussion too. That that what you and I are having, but the discussion about college degrees because back in, in 1981 we were arguing about the value of college degrees, and the point then is is still the same point. You and I, well, I graduated college. And Joe Blow graduated from the same college as I did, same year, right? I got a degree. He got a degree. I worked hard. I studied. Or maybe I did. <laughs> I don't know. I'm making that up probably. But I worked hard. I studied. Joe Blow did nothing but party. We both come out. We both have a degree. What signal is that? What, what the hell sort of good signal is that to any employer? You know? And Joe Blow's probably got like some friend of his dad's who's you know, going to hire him anyway. You know, I mean, the world does work that way, and and it's so stacked against people who, you know, who it doesn't. And you know, this whole—I mean, when schools talk about, oh, the, you come to us for our network, it's like joining the mafia. You know, <laughs> yeah, you can become part Interesting of. Interesting analogy. I hadn't heard of that one before. Oh yeah, you, you, well, the network, you know, to me is just yeah, like, yeah. We we watch out for each other. We yeah, you know, scratch my back, scratch yours. That's it. It's That's it's a tribe thing. Yeah, well, my my daughter likes this. Well, my youngest daughter likes to show suits and and about these lawyers. And this lawyer was screaming at, at his firm, this woman at his firm for hiring a non Harvard graduate. He says we only hire Harvard graduates in this firm. <laughs> I was like, my gosh, you know, I mean, I know it's a TV show, but you know it's true. <laughs> there's a real class consciousness that's embedded in all this, and we have to, and, and to get out of it, you know, I mean. You can't, I mean, to me, the, the way out is what we're doing, is we're not, you know, we're making a conscious decision not to use those institutions, use them as little as we can, and, and try and create something different. And that, and that, I think, is the most important thing. Self-directed learners are, are actually creating something different and finding new paths into work. Um, you know, college is still hanging out there as, as like, it's amazing to me how you could be a self-directed learner until you're 18 and then like you're expected to go to college and buckle down and do that unless you can find a Hampshire or a Goddard college, afford a place like that. But, you know, part of me is why can't you just continue doing self-directed learning? You know, why, why can't, you know, why, why is it so hard for an employer to, to trust a, re a recommendation from somebody else from, you know, I mean, we we have to stop putting like these third parties in, in in the way, thinking that they're better than this. And and of course, I guess that the issue is well, the, a recommendation they could say something negative about you, and then they could get sued, so they're not going to give really honest opinions about you. Well, I think we we could we be better spent figuring out the legal ramifications and how to talk honestly about working with people and and moving forward in our jobs. Than we would to just say, oh no, the best thing is to, to get a get a degree, and you know, we'll use that as a signal, and then we'll use you know your previous employment as a signal that that you can do this too, but you can't talk to the previous employer because you got fired. <laughs> you know, it's I, I I think the whole system is is, is just completely screwed up, and um, self directed learners, you know, if, if, when when we plug into it, we we have to code switch, you know. We, we have to play the game their way. That's why my daughters went to school. That's how we prep them every time. All right, in school, you can't talk unless you raise your hand. You know that. Let's talk about that, you know. 
you know, to send him into the walls. And of course, after two weeks, my daughter Audrey was like, that's the most ridiculous thing. I just want to talk. You know, I mean, we just talk, right? <laughs> like, yeah, we can just talk. <laughs> and so she came out of school. <laughs> my guest today has been Patrick Faringa. Pat, thank you for being on the show. My pleasure, Blake. Thanks so much for having me. This is the Real Education Podcast. This show is produced with the assistance of Zen Zenith, who also created the music. For more episodes, visit blakebowles.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.